Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Do you remember getting your first paycheck or maybe getting approved for your first credit card? The decisions you made after you finally had some money in your hands likely came from what you did and didn't know about personal finance. What did your parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, and friends teach you about money? How was it talked about in your home when you were growing up? Was it discussed at all? This fall, we know that many young adults who just graduated are starting new jobs and taking their first steps toward financial independence. But there are daunting new expenses and an overwhelming amount to learn as you start to run your own financial life. What money habits should you start early? How should you approach looming student loan payments? When retirement is 40 years away for you, should you even be thinking about it now? Well, this hour, we are here to help. One of my favorite guests is joining us this hour. Award-winning personal finance columnist Michelle Singletary of The Washington Post is standing by. And we're going to talk about what young adults need to know about money and finances. And we're taking your phone calls. I want to hear from you, too. Are you a young adult starting out? What challenges do you have around money? And what have you learned that has helped you manage your finances? If you're older, what piece of financial advice do you have for a young person? Or what big money mistake did you make that you now regret? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651 651- Two two seven six thousand, or call us at 800-242-2828. First, though, because it's Monday, I'd like to take some time to talk about the latest developments with the economy. NPR senior economics contributor Chris Farrell is here with me in the studio. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. What are you following this week? China. Oh. Over the weekend, you know, the Financial Times, Bloomberg, uh, Wall Street Journal, there were just a lot of articles about China and specifically about doubts about the Chinese economy. And the epicenter of the concern with China is this growing mountain of real estate debt. Now, real estate and borrowing for real estate had really powered the Chinese economy for a long period of time. But now they've entered... Uh, the payback period. And that is now weighing down heavily on on the economy. And you probably, you're going to start hearing a lot about a a company called Country Garden. And it was the big builder of homes in sort of the China's second and third tier uh, cities. And it's really the real estate problems is damaging consumer confidence, business investment, and it's weighing on this economy. And here's just a number, Angela, that's really worrisome. Um, Record high employment rate for Chinese youth ages 16 to 24 in cities, it's over 21%. And in fact, the Chinese government now is stopping to publish certain numbers because they're bad numbers. And um, so they're trying to sort of not focus so much on the bad news. But here's the thing. That's a really high unemployment rate. And we should be watching this here in the U.S. because? Because, you know, this is the major, second major economy in the world. We have, despite the fact that we are have a lot of tensions and trying mm-hmm. to, to pull apart from each other, um, you know, we, we both play in this global economy. And, you know, China has a lot of really strong parts of its economy. It's a, you know, dominant pres- presence in EVs, electronic vehicles, electric vehicles, and in su- sustainability. And we do still do a lot of trade with them. And so mm-hmm. when you think that Europe is stagnant, Germany is in a lot of trouble. Now China is in a lot of trouble. You know, it just, it just, it makes it that much harder for us to grow as fast as we'd like. I got it. So uh, the U.S. economy by comparison looks healthy. U.S. economy looks really healthy. Now, 
I've been noticing a lot of commentary now where people are starting to grudgingly admit that the U.S. economy actually looks reasonably well. And it's like almost like people, you know, their their model says, look, it can't be good. It, it was supposed to be bad over the summer. The Fed's been tightened. we got this higher interest rates. But, you know, it just kind of the economy continues to grow at a healthy pace. Inflation is moderated down to around 3 percent. And actually, the underlying trend may be better than that. You know, the consumer price index, excluding the cost of shelters, is already going down 1 percent year over year. The employment gains, you know, we're averaging about 200,000 a month. And the job market is cooling off somewhat. But one of the things that Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics points out the cooling in the job market, the layoffs. Remember, we were talking about the layoffs mm-hmm. earlier. Well, that's kind of there's still layoffs going on, but it's not at the same pace as before. What we're seeing the cooling off in the job market is companies are sort of slowing down on their hiring. That's mm-hmm. a much healthier development, mm-hmm. right? And then I just have to emphasize one of the unexpected things that came out of the pandemic was this enormous surge in new business formation. And uh, it came out sort of in the second half of 2020, and then it has just continued. So individuals filed nearly 2.7 million applications to start a business in the first six months of 2023. And that's a 52% over the same period in 2019. Now, not wow. everybody follows through. You know, you file, but they don't necessarily start the business. But the historic record does show that um, new business formation and uh, increase in the filings for applications, you know, they do kind of move hand in hand. So there are some healthy aspects of the U.S. economy, but still some risk out there that are keeping many economists mm-hmm. worried. Well, of course, it's kind of a professional hazard, right? <laughs> but one, as you've noticed, it's more expensive to, to fill up uh, the gas tank. Yeah, you still remember me <laughs> whining about how <laughs> yes. much gas costs? Yes, I do. Yeah. And uh, and that's definitely going on. The price of oil, oil is up. And then we have... Um, you know, the federal government, uh, there's a risk of a federal government shutdown around October. Uh, House Republicans are, are unhappy. Uh, they want more government spending cuts. And if they don't get them, they're threatening to shut down the government. So there are risks out there. But still, I think we should step back and say, look, economies are growing. We've got more jobs. We got higher wages, and we have falling inflation rates. And you told me that there's a, a big event coming up uh, this week, an economic event. Right. So the central bankers from around the world and the U.S. central bankers, they go to Jackson Hole, they take off their their suits and their ties, okay, and they put that's on, enough. Put that's on enough a Polish fleece vest, you <laughs> okay. know, and wander around. And then and, what happens? And then what they do is they talk about <laughs> monetary policy. And of course, what everyone's going to be waiting for is to talk on Friday by Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell. And the expectation is that he's going to say, "Look." Where, you know, inflation is still too high. It's above our 2% uh, target rate that, that, that we have. But we also have to acknowledge that things are getting better. So we're going to stay cautious and keep watching the data. They don't expect anything particularly dramatic to come out of his particular talk. All right. Something that has been catching my eye, uh, headlines about credit cards. Credit card debt is up. It is. And it's, uh, it's, it breached the $1 trillion number for, for the first time. And so that's, that's a sobering number. And you're also starting to see some increases in delinquencies on auto loans, increases in delinquencies on credit card debt. Now, there's Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which compiles this data saying, look, uh, things are not as bad as they were back in 2019. Uh, but they're worried about some of the signs, particularly for people who are living on lower incomes. Mm-hmm. And what I would say, what bothers me about this is I, I think you go through the data. It, it's it's a warning. It's not saying we're in trouble. It's a warning. Is You really want to shore up your household balance sheet while times are good. 
because we do know eventually there will be some bad times. There right. will be another Ups recession, right? Mm-hmm. So you really do want to take advantage of the good times just to get yourself in a better position. For the rest of the hour, Chris, uh, mm-hmm. we're going to focus on advice for young adults who are getting started with managing their own money. Um, again, they, maybe they've graduated from high school in those first jobs. Maybe they graduated from college in the first job. Uh or uh, maybe heading off to college, you know, being independent from the parents a little bit more, managing their own money. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I'm really, uh, really uh, interested to hear what uh, Michelle has to say. Uh, but two, two quick things. First, besides congratulations, mm-hmm. you know, now, now you're, you're launched. Um, <laughs> but when you're talking about personal finance, think about what really matters. You know, your family, your friends, finding a career that's engaging, being surrounded by people, uh, colleagues who, you know, are, are curious and interested in the world. And you want your personal finances to support your values. And one of the reasons why people in this, the industry emphasize so much savings is not because we like preaching denial. It's because we want you to have opportunities over this long lifetime to make choices, to change careers, to spend more time with your kids. So it's about mm-hmm. opportunity and creating opportunities for yourself. And the second thing is mm-hmm. don't go on this personal finance journey on your own. You know, so much of it is what, what can you do, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, Reach out to trusted people. Create a community. Support. And you know they'll help you do your finances, but then you're also helping somebody else do their finances as well. So create a personal finance community. So ask somebody. Ask. Right. Talk. Mm-hmm. Exchange. Have conversations. All right. Uh, NPR's senior economics contributor, uh, Chris Farrell. Stay right there because uh, we're going to dive more into that advice, that good advice for young adults who are just getting started managing their own money. Young, grown folks. Uh, no one loves a conversation about money like my guest this morning. Uh, get ready. Michelle Singletary is with us. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Of course. And, and Michelle is a nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. Her award-winning column is called The Color of Money. And she's also the author of several books, including What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, A Survival Guide. And Michelle, I, I want people to know that you are the mother of three young adults. Uh, hello, Olivia, Jillian, and Kevin. Uh, two daughters <laughs> and a son, all in their 20s. And so, you know, the longtime advice, I think, in, in my family, and I know for for many parents, it's been to, to, to push, your, push your adult children out on their own so that they can become uh, independent in all ways, particularly financially independent. But I know you have some strong thoughts about that. Is that good advice? Was it ever good advice? Uh, no and no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's not. Um, you know, I, I just think that we try to push them out of the nest too soon on the theory that they have to become financially independent. But because so many young adults want to live in areas where the cost of living is so high, that that sets them up for failure right away. Because if they're spending 40, 50, 60% of their net take-home pay on housing and groceries and utilities. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give them a chance to save and build um, a cushion for themselves. And this is particularly so for the young adults who graduate from college with student loan debt. So I encourage parents to give them some breathing room if it's possible. It's not always possible, but if it's possible, let them stay at home. Don't charge them rent as long as they have an agenda for their money. So if they got student loan debt, they're taking all of their, most of their paycheck and paying off that debt 
Or in the case of my children who don't have student loan debt, they're saving for the time when they launch. Um, and so my oldest, she's saving when she launches. Um, she'll you'll have a great down payment for her first home. Um, she'll be able to pay, uh, buy her car. She wants to buy an electrical vehicle with cash. And the same thing for the, her siblings. And so, and and the idea is that when they launch, they go and they don't come back because I'm with you on that. You know? <laughs> but it really, it's really not feasible, particularly, again, in these major metropolitan areas when, you know, rent can be two and $3,000 a month for something really small. That's exactly right. And that's the pitch that we said. Uh, now, young as she was like, I'm moving. I don't care what you say. I'm out of here. And I said, OK, honey, let's go look for apartments and, and, and see school what the teacher. cost is. She's a school Who's teacher. She's a school teacher. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she she's the you know, you always got one. If you got more than one, it's always one of them. That's the one that gives you, you know, <laughs> the gray hairs. <laughs> I would, yeah, the gray hairs. And so she's very She's like me, very independent and strong willed and everything. And so I was like, OK, cool. And so we started looking at it. And she quickly realized, oh, no, this is not going to work for me because she gets two paychecks a month. It Mm -hmm. would have taken a whole paycheck every month. And that's just on rent. That didn't include utilities and groceries and and all that other stuff. And so she's still here (laughs) going into her second year teaching. And we couldn't be happier for her. I can almost feel a lot of young people just uh, breathing a sigh of relief. Like uh, she said it, like we want to be independent, but you know, it's very expensive out there right now. Uh, As we talk about personal finance for young adults, and we're trying to, you know, share some advice on what to do uh, to develop some good money habits when you're still young. uh, The phone lines are open. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. I have a lot of questions for you, Michelle, but I want to bring in our listeners uh, pretty early here to get them in. Again, Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist for the Washington Post, as well as a book author. Uh, Let's talk to Brandon in Minneapolis. Uh, Good morning, Brandon. Thank you for calling in. And what do you want to share or ask? Uh, Yeah. Hi. Um, I guess, well, I'm one of these young adults. I'm I'm a senior in college. And I I mean, I'm dealing already with kind of college finances, but also looking to the future. I'm wondering what kind of a good breakdown of personal finances per month, like how much should I be spending on rent? per month, how much on groceries and kind of like, how do I take that into consideration when I'm thinking of where I want to be after college? Mm. What a great question, Brandon. Your parents must be so proud of you. I love it. <laughs> um, so because not people don't ask that question. So let's talk about housing, which is going to be the biggest part of what you spend. Um, you know, you should probably not spend more than about 35 to 36% of your net pay every month on housing. That's whether you're buying a house, you know, you've got a mortgage or rent. Uh, and beca- and I say that because you need the rest of that percentage to put towards savings. So let's say you're saving for retirement. Fidelity Investments recommends that you save about 15% of your gross pay um, towards retirement. And that would be a combination of your contributions and any employer match. So now you've got 35 to 36%. You've got 15% for retirement. You know, you want to maybe 1% or 2% towards building an emergency fund and what I call a life happens so if you're driving, that's because your car breaks down. Because anytime your car breaks down, it costs like $1,200. Mm-hmm. No. And with food, it depends on you, right? Like how much mm-hmm. you eat, how much you go out. Uh, but you want to control that because people don't realize that the second expenditure on people's budget is eating out. 
right? And I mean, mm-hmm. well, I should say third. So it's housing, transportation, if you have a car loan, and then eating out. But that's so how that's we socialize, right? Right, Brandon? It, that's how we all socialize. It, it usually involves being out and, and, and around oh, food and drinks, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just had my 21st birthday, so I understand okay. that very well. Yes. Oh. So you can celebrate on your 21st birthday in the rest of the year. You invite the people <laughs> over to your house. <laughs> See you next year. You know, I mean, I long ago I was a young adult, long, long, long ago, and mm. I'd go out with my friends. But while they were ordering expensive drinks, I would be ordering water, and you know, of course uh-huh. the bartenders hated me. Or I would buy like one. I know I'm not a drinker, so I'd buy like maybe one Coke and sip it the whole night. And I'm still out with my friends having fun, and they're spending uh-huh. thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand, seventy dollars, and I'm spending like you know two or three. Um, or you, you know, you find ways. To be with your people without spending a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about someone uh, like Brandon who hopefully will get a great job when he graduates. Should he immediately be thinking about uh, how much he can contribute to a savings plan? And what would that look like uh, if he started that in his 20s when he then be- is like 60 years old? That's right. Is Brandon still on? Can I ask him a quick question? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so Brandon, do you have any student loan debt? Uh, no, not right now. Oh, that's great. So you're going to probably graduate with no student loan debt, right? You think? Uh, I'm hoping, yeah. I I don't think I will. Okay, that's great. So what I would say is go for that 15% if you can. Now, if you can't, because, you know, the housing and everything, get as close to it as possible. And then every year as you progress in your career, you want to boost it by like, say, 1%. So let's say you're saying, Michelle, I, I live in a big city. I can't do this. I can do maybe five. Do five. And then the next year, do six and then seven and so on until you reach that goal. And if you do that now in your 20s, you have the one thing that I don't have and a lot of people in my age group don't have, which is time. And so if you start now, you can be a millionaire by the time you're in your 50s just by investing in your workplace plan. And that's not guessing which stock to buy. That's not even starting a business and, and selling it for, you know, gobs of money. It's Mm-hmm. investing every paycheck starting in your 20s to the time where you get closer to when you want to retire and you might retire much earlier than some of us have to retire because we didn't do it in our 20s. Uh, and all you have to do, growth index funds, keep the cost of your investments low and you will be there, my friend. Oh. All right, Brandon, uh, good luck with your senior year and uh, thank you for calling in and asking such great questions and uh, congratulations on that 21st birthday. I know you won't be going out again till you're 22, right? <laughs> sure. No, 25. Sure. So you only get mouth After 21, you only get mouth What could I possibly be doing? All right. Um, one more question. Student loan repayment. So Brandon's fortunate and uh, he doesn't have a lot of student loan debt, but uh, we know that uh, starting it is starting up again this fall, these, these repayments, Michelle, uh, after about three years of folks not being required to pay them. And that interest will start accruing also in just a couple of weeks uh, on September 1st. So uh, borrowers still need to start making those payments now in October. What do you what have you been thinking about that and how that's going to affect young adults uh, this fall? 
Yeah, it's going to be a shock for a lot of people. It's been, you know, the payment pause started March 2020. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot, a lot of time for people to get used to not making those payments. And and a couple of things happen. Some people use that pause to pay off other debt. Some use it to save and Mm -hmm. some just incorporated it in their budget and kept spending. And those are that's the group that I'm most worried about because it's going to be a shock to them when those payments resume. Um, Mm -hmm. They're actually resuming in in September because interest is accumulating, but you don't have to actually make a payment until October. So I suggest that they start to practice making a payment now. So pretend this is like October. So August, you've got a little bit of less time in there and to put that money into a savings account so that you can see how it feels. And if it's tight, then you need to start now figuring out what you need to cut to make those payments. If you find that you can't make the full payment because maybe you lost your job, you got another one, you're not making as much or you're not making as much as you thought you would, then you need to contact your loan servicer and ask them about, you know, they have income-based or income-driven repayment plans that will be based on your income. So there's a lot of uh, commentary out there that people are going to have to choose between food and a student loan payment. That's not true, actually. If you have a federal loan, you can get into an income-based repayment plan, which could, for some people, make their payment as little as zero. So you wouldn't have any loan payments. Now, interest is still accruing, but you don't have to make those loan payments. But you've got to get a handle of that now. Mm-hmm. Contact your loan servicer now to see what your options are. And Chris, any thoughts about uh, the student loan uh, repayments resuming this fall and how that's going to impact folks and how they're thinking about it and talking about it? Oh, well, I absolutely agree with Michelle. And I think for a lot of people, the income-driven, the income-contingent repayment plans is the way to go. You buy yourself some time. And the thing is, there are no prepayment penalties with student loans. So as your career advances, you start making more money, you can accelerate your payments into uh, and pay off your student loans as quickly as possible. But if you need to buy yourself time at this moment when the payments are resuming, mm-hmm. go for the income-driven, the income-contingent. All right, let's take another phone call from a listener as we talk about smart money advice for young people just starting out. How do we get it right early in life and so that we don't have uh, lots of regrets when we get older? How do you learn about uh, personal finance? What are the mistakes you don't want to make? What can you do now? Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828 as I talk with Michelle Singletary, a personal finance columnist uh, there at the Washington Post. Uh, let's uh, go to St. Louis Park. Sam is on the phone. Good morning, Sam. What did you want to ask or, or tell us? And, and what's your situation? Yeah. Hi. Good morning, Angela. Thank you so much for taking my call. I am a senior at the University of Minnesota, mm-hmm. and I study sociology and psychology. Um, well, I, I agree, and, and it's really nice to have a show like this that kind of helps young adults to kind of go where, what's the next step after you get out of this whole ordeal or somebody just coming out of high school, I the, the sociologist part of me kind of has a little bit of like, eh, a lot of the numbers being thrown out and a lot of the percentages seem super cool, super awesome. But to me, knowing a little bit of a society, it, it sounds a little bit unrealistic. We cannot ask people, especially BIPOC people, to go ahead and say you have to go ahead and put 35% of your income for your housing. That is not going to be reasonable. We know that people 
um, BIPOC population are the ones that we take that wage gap in between people of color and white people. Also, job market, it's all it's completely different. And so, houses are some most of sometimes not that stable. So I guess my question is, while all the information seems fine, is there anything that it's more tailored to that type of population mm-hmm. that they don't have uh, the, the, the luxury of saying, I'm going to stay in my mom's house for the next five years until I save mm-hmm. because there's no mom house. Mm, that's a that's an excellent point, and uh, that is a lot of people. The options are really limited. And Michelle, what would you say to that? Right. So, the, and it is a good point, but you don't throw out the percentages. You use them as a benchmark. But listen, I mm-hmm. came from a low income background. Um, I completely understand. I got to college because I was on a scholarship. My my grandmother who raised me couldn't afford to send me, couldn't afford to send me money when I was in college. So I, I'm in that, po- I was in that population. I understood that. And I had to take care of a disabled brother who was also in that population. And so what happened? So my disabled brother couldn't afford to have housing on his own. So he came to live with me in my early 20s. I'm taking care of a disabled brother. And so that's how you have to do it. You have to band together with others in your situation Mm -hmm. until there are policies and programs to help with rental assistance and utility assistance and things like that. So I try to operate on two roads, trying to pitch and help and promote policies that will help these folks in that in that uh, income bracket. But also the reality is until they catch up to that, that you can't be a young adult out on your own. You might have to get an apartment or a house with other people in your same situation, or you might have to maybe move to an area where there are better job opportunities, or maybe you've got a relative in an area with a lower cost. Um, and, and there are also a lot of programs now around the country that where there's seniors who have houses that they want to move and they open their homes to college students and young adults who are also having issues with housing. So you look for those kinds of opportunities. So you connect to your community and try to find a, a situation that will help you bridge that gap until your income can catch up to the recommendations for the percentages. But you're right. Don't let the percentages uh, discourage you. Um, just use them as something that hopefully you can do in the future. That's goal as a goal. That's what you're trying right. to get to. And right. and Michelle, you've talked a lot about and you've lived this that, you know, you should find someone to act as your money mentor. And and mm-hmm. how important is that that you're willing to ask for advice and that you have access to someone who can can give you some money advice? How do you find help? Because not, not everyone's so, parents can give you good advice, right? That's true. That's exactly true. So, you know, you work in your community. I mean, I run a program out of my church called Prosperity Partners Ministry, and we have people from all income levels, from single moms just getting by to people making six high six-figure salaries. And so we all are connecting them. And in that program, we create accountability partners. So that single mom with, with um, you know, struggling, we will match that with somebody else else, a single mom who's been where she's been Mm -hmm. and help her budget and help her make right decisions. Like I was working with a single mom and she was out there in her apartment trying to make it. And I said, listen, honey, you need to go back home and live with your mom 
oh, but my kid, no, if you guys have to stay in the same room, that's what you have to do. And she did. And she, and that gave her some breathing room and she got some more skills. She got a better job. And now she's, she's married, got a house and she's on her way. So those are the kinds of things. So you connect to people in your community, whether it's religious community or community center or the local uh, community college, which has, you know, uh, skill building programs, career counseling, you know, there are some things, they're tough, it's tough, but there are some programs out there where you can connect and find that mentor. And I I imagine that if most people look around, there usually is somebody in their sphere of influence or circle of friends, maybe it's your friend's mom or dad Mm -hmm. that you can connect with. And, And it's so important to do that. I mean, I don't know if Angela would be okay if I tell this story, but her daughter is going to college in our area. And oh, so my daughter. Yes. Just- I'm sorry. You're going to tell my family business? It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> um, and she's such a lovely woman. So, you know, we called her. It's like, because she's over here. And we're like, hey, come hang out with us. And she came and did movie night with us. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that you have to do. And while we're having movie night, we're talking about other stuff. You know, well, how's your life? What's going on? And that's how you build relationships, especially mm-hmm. if you're away from your parents in a different area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate all the advice and the free meals. Thank you, Michelle, for doing that, (laughs) helping us. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts about, we've got programs, we have connections here in Minnesota, like folks who offer advice and want to connect with others to, to bring them along. Yes, and so it's just sort of to reinforce this point, it's about sharing resources. And we're also seeing a, a trend within families, the rise of multi-generational families yes. and you know being deliberate about it. And then so you can share uh, all kinds of, of expenses. But even you know outside of families, there's been an enormous increase of people just sh- living together. It might be a cooperative arrangement, building up equity. But again, it's about sharing resources because housing is really expensive. Transportation is really mm-hmm. expensive. Food is expensive. So it's not just that you're sharing resources, but you're also also sharing your knowledge, your experience within this household. And it's a growing trend and it's an important trend. Let's go to Duluth and talk to one of our listeners. Harrison is on the phone. Harrison, thank you for waiting. And what do you want to tell us? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, I guess I wanted to provide a bit of a success story um, with all this gloom and doom uh, (laughs) regarding finances. Um, And, you know, my wife and I, uh, we both uh, attended college and, and just completed paying off our last student loan payment, um, which feels really great. And um, kind of the way we tackled that uh, was really targeting loans with a high interest rate. So that'd be my first little bit of advice is to kind of keep an eye on interest rate um, because that's thousands of dollars over the principal um, that you're going to have to pay out of pocket. So we really took this student loan pause to really focus on paying down our principal mm. so that when um, the payments would come back, uh, we didn't have the interest. And uh, luckily, we were able to pay them off during the pause, um, which ended up being uh, a very uh, a happy moment for both of us. I'm sure. Um, yeah. And, you know, we both work in healthcare. We both uh, went to graduate school. Um, we're not doctors by any means, so we don't have that sort of income. But we really did prioritize um, you know, saving money as best as we could, paying off high interest debt, and uh, kind of mm-hmm. living uh, what we like to call uh, our lean years. So living in basement apartments, having roommates, um, paying cash for, for cheaper vehicles, um, and trying to just kind of prioritize getting our debt out of the way as soon as possible. 
possible. Mm. Harrison, thank you for that success story uh, there in Duluth. Michelle, I'm envisioning you doing a happy dance there. I am. I, I think it's great. They did all the things that I would recommend. We differ a little bit on um, debt repayment, but if it worked for them, that's great. I suggest a, a reverse method that you target the debt with the smallest balance first, because psychologically, when people get rid of debt quickly, they it energizes them, it motivates them, and they actually don't end up paying a whole lot of interest because they get rid of the debt sooner. But either method, whether it's small balance first or high interest works if you're committed and you have a plan. And you've talked a lot to a lot of people who owe student loans, Michelle. And and the one thing that people often notice that they get in, that you know, that people get in trouble because they don't understand how interest balloons. And so what should young people understand about that? So they're taking on this debt. And what I find is when you hear those stories about large amounts of debt, what usually is happening is that they took um, a forbearance or deferral for many years. And the way it did, it worked is the interest wasn't being paid. It was tacked onto the principal balance and then new interest charges on the principal plus that interest. So then as you can see how it snowballs. So if you spend several years not making any payments. That's why a debt of 15000 could get up being 45000 or $50,000. So that often is what has happened, that they borrowed, you know, a reasonable amount, but then didn't attack that debt because they heard people say all the time, don't worry about student loan debt. It's lower interest debt. Get yourself situated, you know, get your life going, then attack the debt. And, and they do that and not realizing that that interest has capitalized over the years over and over again, which helps balloon that debt. Mm. Credit card debt, um, Chris mentioned earlier, we were talking, it's up compared to uh, pre-pandemic average debt. Uh, People in their 40s um, on average carry the highest amount of credit card debt, Michelle. Um, But we also know that young adults are using credit more. And does that concern you? It does. I mean, the, the vast majority of people pay off their credit card bills every month. So, but about 46, 47%, depending on who you talk to and how they do the numbers, revolve that debt, meaning that every month they pay a little bit and then the next month it's still there, plus the interest that charge for that month. That's the group that's in trouble. Um, and young adults, people who are struggling, use their credit cards to get by. So this idea that they're taking vacations and things like that is not true for that group. Now, the group that I think is a little crazy is the people making six-figure salaries that are revolving debt, and they are more likely to have revolving debt than people who are struggling. And I know some people are thinking, well, you know, in San Francisco, $100,000 is not enough, but it's still a lot of money. Um, And if you are using a credit card and you can't pay that balance off the next month, you need to stop right now and put those cards away and tackle that debt. And Chris mentioned that, that it's a relatively good time for some people. The hardest time I have to get people to do the right thing with their money is when times are good, because they think times will be good all the time. And so they're out eating and taking lavish vacations. And we were all, you know, in the COVID shut down. And so now they're taking cruises and going to and crowding up streets and all kinds of things like that on credit. And it, they can do it because they can make the payment and even a little bit more than the minimum payment until they can't anymore. And then that credit card debt sneaks up on you. And now they've got ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in credit card debt and they lose their job. 
that's when it becomes a crisis. And Chris, you see that a lot with like like people using credit cards more and having a harder time paying it off at the end of the month. That's right. I mean, I think Michelle's absolutely catch. So it's it's the people that are struggling that that you worry about. And again, you know, it's sad to say, but people do lose their jobs. I mean, it's it's not you know that happens, or your parents get ill and you need to help take care of them, or there's some kind of a medical emergency in, in your family. So these mm. things happen. It's just part of life, and you can't pretend that they don't. And so you want your finances set up in a way that allows you to sort of navigate through some of these hard times. Let's take another phone call from a listener as we talk about uh, smart money advice for young adults in uh, Wyzetta. Barry is on the phone. Good morning, Barry. What do you want to tell us? Well, I have a little story to tell about when my girls were little and how I helped train them to understand money. And so when they were single-digit girls, you know, like under 10, I set up the dad bank. So when then they were at the age when they got allowances, so when it was allowance time on Friday, instead of giving them cash money that they could put in their pocket and spend very easily, we deposited the money into the dad bank. And then if they needed something, they could go to the dad bank too. We just do it because they had their own money there. Also, we insisted that they, when they got any money, they had to divide it into three buckets. One is for spending, one is for saving, and one is for gifting so if they wanted to go to a birthday party and buy somebody, take a gift, they'd had to dip into their own account mm-hmm. first to buy the gift for someone. And then if they didn't have enough to, as a parent, maybe you'd help them out if it was a good idea. Anyway, if not, they'd learn that they can't just get anything from the from the. So starting the, the starting it early, starting building that idea of. You save some, you use some for your uh, spending, and then uh, setting aside stuff for gifts as well. So you see that in their adult lives, Barry? Did that carry over when they became older? Yep, did carry over, and they're both pretty much financially independent. All right. They are both married, so they have that double income thing happening. Uh, Another success story. Thank you, Barry. Uh, In Minneapolis, Paul is on the phone. Paul, what did you want to tell us? Good morning. Uh, hi, I actually have a 15-year-old who is looking at getting jobs uh, and wants to save money, wants to develop good spending habits. Uh, they really do have good goals in mind. But when the rubber hits the road and they get any kind of money, you know, it's, it's burning a hole in their pocket. They're at the, uh, at the gas station, um, convenience store, getting candy. They're going to Starbucks. They have a phone. So the Etsy and Amazon orders are kind of out of control because oh, they wow. don't have a bank account. Um, so I'm... Wondering what kind of advice I can take to them because they do want to develop good habits. I love it's this. Just the actual, yeah, you know, opportunity. It's just the actual work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fifteen yeah. expressing the desire, at Michelle, but having a hard time with the following up yeah. with the action. I love it. I wish we got Barry's telephone number so he could call. Br- oh, but Barry <laughs> could call Paul. Right, get you some buckets. <laughs> because, because, yeah, because what Barry did, yes. and mm-hmm. and Paul, what I think you need to do is because we hear, let them make their own choices. So, and it's true, you want to make let them make some choices, but in my house, like Barry's house. When you got money, it had to go into those buckets. And I, we did the same thing with our kids. And, and Barry shows why an allowance works. Most of the time, an allowance doesn't work because all you're doing is giving them spending money and no lessons. 
allowance. Mm -hmm. And so if that's your goal, then don't give them any allowance at all because you're actually creating a consumer rather than someone who's going to be financially or fiscally responsible. So we did what Barry did. You got some money. We helped you control it. It had to go spending, Mm -hmm. saving, exactly. And for us, gifting was also um, a charitable giving because we required them to tithe, to give some to other people. And I remember, I'm going to (laughs) cry. I remember my son, we were in church and um, when Haiti had one of their their earthquake and we were collecting money in church and he had just gotten some of his money and he said, mom, I want to give all of it to that effort. And, and that's what you teach them by example, because he saw us giving, he, our children Mm. saw us with those three pots. And so Paul, I would say you have to take a little bit control because he's 15 and he don't know nothing. So when he gets (laughs) his money, (laughs) you know what? So when he gets his money, you sit down with him like Barry did and you say, okay, um, which I don't want to put your son's name out there, but son, this is how we're going to help you spend your money because we want you to um, use it well going forward. And he's going to gripe and roll his eyes and, and listen, you might need to put a lock on your bedroom door, but that's okay <laughs> because you're still the parent and he's still 15 and he don't know nothing. Okay. okay. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Good luck, Paul. Let's take, a, let's take another phone call from Mankato. This is James on the phone. Good morning, James. What did you want to share with us? Uh, advice for young people starting out managing their money. Yeah. Hi. Uh-huh. Um, it's just been it, it's been fascinating to hear all the different things about like different programs, you know, and breathing room and so on. Because um, I was lucky that I was introduced to a program called Money Canvas, mm-hmm. and with that, it was a free, it's, I mean, still a free program. If I'm still meeting with my coach, you get uh, partnered up with a coach. It's an online program called Money Canvas, and it's free. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's free. It's online. Like we do it through. You know, I did it from home and from my computer, mm-hmm. uh, and it's nationwide because the, my, a friend from Colorado is the one who introduced me to it, and they pretty much have coaches across the country that meet with you online for free, and they kind of just do, they kind of walk you through, like, okay, where are you currently at? They help you kind of paint that picture. That's wonderful. Like, okay, how much am I saving and should be saving? How much am I spending? And I can't, I even through the process found some of my money leaks, you know, I found like, oh, wait, I'm totally spending more than I should up in this area and so on. So it was super cool, super, you know. Helpful. Um, how old are you I now, James? It. James, how old are you now? I am 32. 32. And you feel like getting, having that financial coach uh, helped you? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, I started with the program a couple of years ago and. And yeah, like I've been able to go back and, you know, like re-meet with them uh, for a couple of different sessions and they continue to be free. You know, there's like, and that's one thing that they say at the front end of it, like there's no sales in this. This is just a service that we provide. Mm -hmm. So it's been, it's been, it was been super helpful for me just to get things in order. All right. That's James in Mankato. Um, Something else, uh, Michelle, I know you've written a little bit about um, what's happening just in real life, particularly with, with people in their twenties and maybe early thirties and this, uh, you know, the the influence of social media and seeing people traveling and, and taking vacations. And also, it's a time a lot of people are traveling to weddings. Um, we had a show a couple of days ago about uh, fewer people are, are getting married and people are delaying weddings. But you've written about the expense of weddings and also how it's okay to not go to a wedding. How it, Specifically, I think the headline for your, your column was, um, they do, but you don't. It's okay to RSV know if you're broke. 
That's right. Let's talk about the, the destination weddings, the great, fabulous weddings, when you get an invitation. Um, what made you write about that? Uh, you know, I've been getting a lot of complaints, even among my friend groups, about you know being invited to destination weddings and 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 occasions that cost a lot of money. Like someone's having a retirement pa- uh, party and they ask you to uh, pay fifty dollars to go to their party to celebrate them, <laughs> and we're all like, "Are you serious?" And so now, <clears throat> when I get an invitation, if you're asking me to pay to be a guest, I'm not showing up. I'm just gonna say thank you very much. I might send you a card or call you, wish you a happy birthday, but I'm not gonna pay to be a guest. And this is a particularly hard thing for young adults because they it's a tight friend group. Right. They want to be there for their friend. I get that. But you have to have financial integrity. And it starts and you learn it in your early years. You have to be able to say, I can't do this. It's not in my budget. And you can use your budget as that bad guy or girl. Blame it on the budget. And if you can't do something, say, listen, my budget just that budget is really tough. It will not let me go. I am so sorry. I love you so much, but I cannot go. Or if they ask you to be in the wedding party and you can't afford the dress and the bridal shower and the, you know, all the stuff that they want you to do, just say, I would love to attend, but I can't be an attendant in your wedding. And if you start doing this now in your young years, it becomes easier because trust me, the peer pressure does not stop when you're a young adult. It's way up into, right. mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I get peer pressure from my friends. It's like, why can't you go? Why are you still driving that car? You know, we're going out to eat. And, you know, just this weekend, my nephew asked us to go out to some restaurant for brunch. And my husband and I, who, of course, can afford it, but we didn't. That's not how we wanted to spend our money. And so we're like, nope, too much. And we (laughs) said, hey, why don't we just meet at my sister's house? And we all brought something a little Mm. bit. And we had a, you know, a a potluck brunch instead of, you know, and I know some of my young adult kids, they didn't want to go and pay all that money. They didn't want to say that to them. And so we kind of help rescue them, but we're trying to teach them and they do lots of times tell their friends, nope, it's not in the budget. So, uh, and that's what you have to do. So in our last minute here, Michelle, it, it, it's worth being honest and worth stating right. that because everyone's thinking it like this is a stretch financially, but I want to do it. So if we were actually to state it, that that would make it easier. You, you hit it on the head honesty. And, you know, lots of times a lot of people in the group can't afford to do it because they, and that they go along with the group because mm-hmm. nobody speaks up. And my kids, of course, you know, in the group, they didn't want to speak up and all their friends like, oh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, it's okay. And if people love you and trust you, they will understand. And if they don't, then you might need to reassess that relationship. Because the moment someone tells me something's not in their budget, my request stops. It's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to respect you because Mm -hmm. you just told me something you can't do and I'm not going to pressure you. I'm not going to spend other people's money because I don't know their financial situation. So when I say I can't or my budget says I can't, you need to respect that. And those are the kind of people I want in my life. All right. Well, we're going to end on that note. I want to thank our guests today and our callers for your great questions and stories. We've been talking with Michelle Singletary, a nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for the Washington Post. Her award-winning column is called The Color of Money and the author of several books. Check out her latest, What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, A Survival Guide. And as always, Chris Farrell here in the studio with me. Uh, He is our senior economics contributor. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. This conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom.
Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.